Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. We've come to a new section of Srila Jiva Goswami's Paramatma Sandarbha. Maya's relationship to the Jiva and to Paramatma. This began in Anacheta 82, which we discussed, that the Jiva is covered by the potency of Paramatma. Again, drawing from uh, the 12th canto concluding statements by Srila Jiva Goswami to Maharaj Parikshit, wherein an analogy is used of the sun, although having the ability to create a cloud, is itself not affected by the cloud. So that was from the uh, fourth chapter, 32nd verse. And Jiva utilized that verse to emphasize the point that Paramatma, although creating the material manifestation, is in no way affected by it. Then we proceeded to the 83rd Anucheta. Also drawing at this point, again from Sukadeva Goswami's concluding remarks regarding liberation, ultimate liberation, not temporary liberation. In the ten subjects of the Srimad Bhagavatam, referred to as Naroda, Naroda meaning in the context of the subjects of the Bhagavatam, dissolution. Dissolution in the Bhagavatam's terminology can be looked at as four different dissolutions. Dissolution of the material body, which is referred to as Nitya. It doesn't stop it happening at any time. The body is continually being dissolved. Luckily for us, it remakes itself through the majority of our existence, but at one point, one body will be dissolved completely except for the subtle components, mind, intelligence, and false ego. Then another gross form will be entered magically by some arrangement of material nature, some small exertion of uh, thinking and feeling and willing on our part will have some influence on it, but not as much as we would like. It's pretty limited influence. We don't really get to pick the next family we're going to be born into, unless we have some extraordinary shakti that's been acquired through austerity or yoga practice within the material realm. Although there are some religious some religions that strive very much for the family-oriented future. So their, their emphasis, their pryojan, you could say, their ultimate attainment would be going to heaven with your family intact. Other families, other, other jivas would want to make sure that wherever they go in their next life, no one from their current family was there, but that would be a different, a different, design, a different religion. Yes, well put. So we went over this: the liberation of continual liberation. Then there's a dissolution, the complete Nietzschean liberation. Then there's uh, of both sarga and. Visarga. So there's two creations, and then there's two annihilations related to those. There's the annihilation at the end of a day of Brahma. So whatever he made is is annihilated for the most part, at least the 14 planetary systems. There's some other higher planetary systems, which also are within each material creation, each universe, Brahmanda creation of a Brahma, there's higher planetary systems which aren't destroyed at the end of a day of Brahma, but they are destroyed at the end of his life, which is the associated dissolution is the dissolution of all the universes. So at that time, uh, Karnadakshai Vishnu, from whom all the 
individual universes manifest, withdraws all of them. And he takes a little time off from the creative process. So we have those three dissolutions. And then we have what we discussed last class, ultimate dissolution. And in this instant, ultimate dissolution is the dissolution of the individualized false ego associated with material existence. And it's absolute dissolution. Or another term is liberation. So the discussion was liberation is attained by the grace of Paramatma. Again, utilizing a verse from the same concluding remarks of Sukadeva Goswami, going on with the idea that the cloud, the analogy of a cloud being created, independent of influencing the sun in any way, in a similar way that cloud can be blown away. So this is what Sukadeva uses as, as a uh, an example. So the cloud is blown away and then you can see the sun. You no longer, your sight, your vision is no longer obstructed by darkness. So in a similar way, knowledge can dissipate the darkness of material ignorance up to a point, but only up to a certain point that ultimately, just as a cloud, we cannot go outside and wish the clouds to go away, although sometimes we wish they would go away. But we can't just go out and of our own volition, our own free will, dissipate the clouds and see the sunshine. So in a similar way, by utilizing that analogy, Sukadeva Goswami is relaying to Maharaj Pariksit, ultimate liberation cannot be gained through your own efforts. You need outside assistance. Just as you need a wind to come along and dissipate a cloud, you also need the influence of Paramatma in order to dissolve your false sense of self completely, absolutely. Now, we discussed in the last class that we can, the jiva in and of itself can, to a certain extent, attain some liberation. We call them jivan muktas. They can, we can liberate ourselves from the influence of Bad, of karma, by not engaging in karma, by attaining knowledge. So there's jnana yoga, and there's astanga yoga. There's yogas that one can do and become a walking, walking liberated person. They can actually walk away from material attachments, but they cannot completely liberate themselves from material existence. That can only be attained with a pinch of bhakti. So we can take it so far, but ultimately there has to be some acknowledgement of, of bhakti or a personalized representation of the supreme absolute truth along with what would we would call the Brahmavadis, not the Mayavadis, not the you know, what we call Advaitavadis, uh, uh, which from the perspective that we've been taught by Jiva just here in the Paramatma Sandarbha have a misconception regard, regarding Brahman. But liberation up to a point is available without outside influence. And we call that personality a Jeevan Mukta. We talked a little bit about 
We have examples of that. We have the four Kumaras. We have Sukadev Goswami himself before he was touched by the grace of bhakti uh, in the form of hearing slokas in the woods uh, sent out by his father Vyasadeva to entice him because he wanted to give him more knowledge. But Sukadeva didn't realize there was any knowledge to be received from Srila Vyasadeva at the time of his birth over and above knowledge that would continue to bind him to material existence. So he didn't want that knowledge. He'd be walked away from home. And his father, wait, wait, running after him. And Sukadev just, he's not looking back. He's not interested. But in his state of, of liberated consciousness, when he heard a few ver when he actually stopped and heard by some arrangement of his father, by hook or by crook, I will catch his mind. I will catch his consciousness and pull him in so that I can give some additional instruction. So based on that intent of the Vaishnav, the desire of a Vaishnav to, to assist, to help, to reach out, to do outreach uh, of bhakti, so that's why we say that bhakti comes from bhakti. Bhakti comes from somebody that has bhakti in their art. And uh, that outreach can mature quickly or over time. If it matures over an extended period of time um, through some small exposure, uh, we call that agyata sukriti. You do something even unknown to yourself, with no real intent, but you do something favorable uh, to bhakti, and generally that is some service to a bhakta, generally speaking. Or you may do some other outrageous thing, like get in an argument with a prostitute all night, that happens to be a codice, <laughs> and you performed a bhakti vrata, and that bhakti vrata leads to further involvement in bhakti. So, or you may be just down at the beach, you know, uh, exercising with the the weights, and along comes a cart, and you you're appreciated. You appreciate. Oh, that's that's really quite a festival going on. So, unbeknownst to you, you're acquiring some some samskara for for the Supreme Lord uh, through some kind of appreciation. Drawing from this Anucheta, from this verse from the Bhagavatam, then we have Jiva Goswami taking his conclusion one step further. Now we'll continue this evening with the 84th Anucheta. And this will, again, uh, Srila Jiva Goswami is now going to draw on the last verse of these instructions of Sukadeva Goswami to Maharaj Pariksit from the fourth chapter of the twelfth canto of the Bhagavatam. And again, he's, he's bringing out more in, re, in relationship to ultimate liberation or absolute dissolution, as it's referred to in the subjects of the Bhagavatam. Liberation is the ultimate dissolution. Sri Sukha concludes his instructions. So this is actually the conclusion of Sri Sukadeva Goswami's instructions. From the 12th canto, 4th chapter, 34th verse. When in this manner the bondage of the self brought about by the phenomenal ego that is a product of maya has been cut with this sword of discrimination and one becomes situated in immediate realization of the infallible Paramatma, that state, O oh dear King, is called ultimate dissolution. Jiva Goswami explains the verse as follows. The pronoun by this refers to the weapon of a discrimination between the intrinsic I consciousness and the phenomenal Ahankar. Indicated in the previous verse, 
by the word jignasa, the discrimination that arises through inquiry into the self, as the beginning of stated the beginning of the Vedanta Sutra or Brahma Sutra, Atato Brahma Jignasa. Now let us inquire into the nature of our self. So this is this is the beginning for well as often referred to this is the beginning of human life. Up to this stage any other life in a body that might look human is not a utilization of the human form. So the really human life begins when this inquiry arises. Tato Brahma Jignasa. Now, in this human form of life, let us inquire about the nature of our self, our true being. The word Maya Maya, a product of Maya, is an adjective of the phenomenal I consciousness. Ahankar used to differentiate it from the intrinsic I consciousness that is part of the Jiva's own true nature. So Jiva's pointing out here, when we talk about ego, there's ego, which is associated with the pure self, the Jiva, free of any influence or upadis. So our true self, free of any false identifications or colorings by consciousness which aren't relative to our true self, that kind of ahankar, true ahankar, is there, and it's part of the intrinsic nature of the jiva. Then, of course, there's ahankar, false ego. False ego means colored by false senses of self relating to material involvement. The verb avitistate means that one becomes situated in one's own intrinsic identity. Not only that, but achutatmanubhava, he becomes fixed in immediately apperception of the self. Or in other words, a paramatma, who is known as achuta. While explaining these verses, this is from the commentary, Shijiva Goswami has refuted Vivartavad. Uh, the verses referred to here are this series of verses that have been chronologically presented by Jiva Goswami in his Anuchedas. He's refuted Vivartavad along with Vigyanavad and Asatkaryavad and has firmly established Satkaryavad. Satkaryavad is an essential foundation for the path of bhakti. And therefore, Jiva Goswami has endeavored over the past few sections to establish it unequivocally. Satkaryavad propounds that Paramatma, who is the cause of the cosmos, has real potency that undergoes modification to manifest the real world. In other words, God is not dead, is really what Satkaryavad is establishing. There is God, and he is alive, and he has real potencies, and based on his real potencies, you have a real experience of existence. Otherwise, maybe it is just an imagination as they explain, the, the Vivartavad theory propounds. If there's not a real God, then it's Asatkaryavad, that it's unreal coming from unreal, or something coming from nothing, or all the different misconceptions that he's presented in this these various sections or anuchedas of his Paramatma Sandarbha. 
So I thought it would be a good lesson to just go through exactly what Sukadev Goswami said in his final instructions to Maharaj Pariksit uh, chronologically as they were used in the Anachetas by Srila Jiva Goswami. So this began, this whole exercise began by his utilization of the 23rd verse from the 4th chapter of the 12th canto, which started at Anachetas 72. So imagine, these are, this is Sukadeva Goswami uh, speaking his concluding instructions to Maharaj Parikshit. This is, this is the, the, we're wrapping it up now. You know, the discourse has, has been going on now for seven days. And Maharaj Parikshit is about to, this is, this is the final, the final little, if you get this, this is, this is the summary now. If I can get it, put, pack it all in this summary and you can take this, you can take this to the bank and death will not, you'll not be affected by, you actually will be deathless. So he begins. Brahman manifests in the form of intelligence, the senses, and the objects of sense perception. And it is their ultimate basis. Whatever has a beginning and an end is insubstantial because of being an object perceived by limited senses and because of being non-different from its own cause. Remember, Brahman can sometimes the word Brahman can refer to the material manifestation. can refer to spiritual undifferentiated aspect of the supreme absolute truth also. So Brahman is used in different ways. The next verse. A lamp, the eye that views by the light of that lamp and the visible form that is viewed are non-different from the element light. In the same way, intelligence, the senses, and sense perceptions have no existence separate from the supreme reality, although that absolute truth remains totally distinct from them. The three stages of intelligence are called waking consciousness, sleep, and deep sleep. But my dear king, the variegated experiences created for the pure living entity by these different states are nothing more than illusion. Just as clouds in the sky come into being and are then destroyed, the material universe with its parts is created and destroyed within Brahman. O King, the cause of the universe is said to be factual since the cause is perceived to have a separate existence from the universe, just as threads of a cloth are separate from the cloth. What is experienced as cause and effect is an, illu is an illusion since they are mutually dependent. Everything has a beginning and an end and is therefore unreal. This universe and even a single atom within it have no definition without reference to the Supreme Soul. If that is so, then objects related to the Lord are also spiritual and non-different from the Lord. There is no material duality in the absolute truth. If a person thinks that there is duality, he is ignorant like one seeing the space in two pots as two different kinds of space, or the fire in two lamps as two different kinds of fire, or the prana in two bodies as two different kinds of prana, when actually there is only one space, one fire, and one prana. Just gold is perceived in different forms. I think uh, the word as should have been there. Just as gold is perceived in different forms by various types of manufacturing, 
in the ordinary world, the Supreme Lord, inaccessible to material senses, is described in various words, both ordinary and Vedic, by different types of men. The cloud is a product of the sun and is revealed by the sun, but the cloud covers the eye. Another portion of the sun, the effects of Brahman, are revealed by Brahman. Similarly, Ahankar, the effect of Brahman, helps the jiva, a portion of Brahman, to bind himself up. When the cloud produced from the sun is destroyed, the eye can see the actual form of the sun. Similarly, when the spirit soul destroys his material covering of false ego, by inquiring into the transcendental science, he realizes Brahman. O king, when the illusory false ego that binds the soul has been cut off with the sword of discriminating knowledge, and one remains with firm meditation on Achuta, the supreme soul, it is called the Achyantika Pralaya, Pralaya meaning dissolution or liberation. Well, actually, the word itself is dissolution. So, yantika, destruction of the false ego. So, with that, those that the whole series of verses, Jiva Goswami has has made an elaborate, ref, re, refuted vivartavad, and one would question, well, why this section of the Bhagavatam? Why would he choose this series of verses? But we can see just by reading through the verses how they could be misinterpreted because of, of the way they're presented by Sukadeva Goswami. So one could utilize the verses to get across the wrong philosophy regarding the absolute truth. So now we'll go on to the next Anucheta and see that there is some real reason behind Jiva Goswami's utilizing of this series of verses. The Swarup and Maya Shaktis of Bhagavan. Sridhar Swami and Advaita Vad. So Jiva says in his next Anucheta, a certain group of people Say the following regarding this topic. The topic, of course, is the discussion of Sukadeva Goswami at the end of the Bhagavatam. Parameshwar has two potencies, intrinsic and extrinsic, called Swarup and Maya, respectively. By the first, he manifests the opulence of his own nature, and by the second, like a magical show, he displays the creation of the universe to the jivas, deluded by her alone. It is indeed seen that a person having various types of knowledge acts in different ways. This description does not come into the category of Advaita Vad, though it seems to. Only a real agent shows a veridical object to be real seer, to be a real seer by the real potency of Maya. The same is also seen in the world as well. Therefore, let the above point of view also be accepted because. And then Jiva Goswami concludes this Anucheta with a verse of his own. So he writes his own verse. For us, any object other than the enchanting fragrance of Sri Krishna's lotus feet, even if real, is ultimately false. So what is the point of this senseless obstinacy in regard to the world's reality or non-reality? Now the meaning comes out in the commentary as presented by Sachin Das. What he points out to us is that in this section of, and this is an important section, I mean, this whole refutation of, of well, what we would call Mayavad philosophy, 
or and also well sunyavadi so sunyavadi so the sunyavad the voidus nirvasesha sunyavad nirvasesha without any qualities these two classes of people are refuted in this section of the Paramatma Sandarbha. But in this section of the Paramatma Sandarbha, we find that Jiva Goswami has not, through the whole section, referred to the commentary, the Bhagavatam commentary of Sridhar Swami. He's provided his own explanation and not that of Sridhar Swami. Why has he done that? Well, because in this section of the Bhagavatam, Sridhar Swami seems to accept the Advaitin viewpoint. He seems to accept and present the verses in a way that's contrary to the way they're presented by Jiva Goswami in his explanation. So in the commentary here by Satchin Das, he brings out some of those, what we would call discrepancies in commentary. The opening statement of this section, meaning this last Anacheda, is mysterious. Since Sri Jiva does not make explicit whose opinion he is restating, our own estimation of this is that he is talking about Sridhar Swami, who, according to Sri Jiva himself, has written commentaries that are a mixture of Advaitavad and Bhakti. And we can refer to, back to his Tattvasandarva, the 37th Anucheta. I'm sorry, 27th Anucheta. Out of respect for the Swami, out of Jiva Goswami's respect for Sridhar Swami, Sri Jiva is careful not to refute him openly. Imagine, so much respect that even when the philosophy is wrong, not to openly confront Sridhar Swami's commentary, Bhagavatam commentary. And yet he also does not want that Swami might be misunderstood as an Advaitavadi. Sri Jiva Goswami is also writing in defense of Swami's acceptance of Satkaryavad, lest, lest anyone try to refute the former by citing the latter's Advaitic comments, knowing well that Jiva Goswami has great reverence for Sridhar Swami. In other words, let's look, and this, I'll just let the the discourse here in the commentary uh, bring out the points. Swami's commentary on the verses from Srimad Bhagavatam's 12th canto, 4th chapter, cited in the previous few sections, is in line with Advaita Vad. Therefore, Sri Jiva has not referred to it in his own commentary on these verses, which is otherwise his custom. For example, on verse 12.429, Swami writes, so this is what Swami writes in, re, in regards to the 29th verse, in this way the unreal nature of the universe has been proven by many arguments. End of quote. This is a sharp contrast to Sri Jiva's verdict at the end of Anicheta 72. Quote, Therefore it is concluded that the universe is indeed real. <laughs> While commenting upon 12.430, Swami writes, again one of his commentaries, an objection is raised, but certainly there is plurality, even of the truly existent, namely the self in the form of the jiva and Brahman. In response to this, the verse states that if one admits of such plurality, then he is devoid of authentic knowing. In other words, if you're seeing a difference between Brahman and the Jiva, then that's not authentic knowledge, is what Jiva's, is what Sridhar Swami has written in his commentary. 
So how is it that there is a difference between them in terms of practical dealings? The verse answers that the difference is because of upadi. In other words, the jiva and brahman are the same. Well, in a sense, there's nothing wrong with that, really, right? The jiva, the intrinsic qualities of the jiva is the jiva is pure. The jiva is without upadis. The jiva is not affected by outside influences in its true nature, in its true ego. It's only the false ego that leads the jiva to become entangled and take up a false claim of doership and ownership and involvement in material nature, which is truly foreign to him. Like the little play we used to do, a fish out of water. The jiva is, a fi- is, is you know, it's on land. It, it, it really is not at home. From these statements, one might think that Sridhar Swami to be a staunch Advaita body. In other words, from the way he commented on these, we could certainly say, sounds like an Advaitan to me. Sri Jiva shows, however, that this is not the case, which is evident if one reads the commentary of Swami on the complete Bhagavat Purana. In other words, you have to look at the whole of someone's presentation, not that you cherry-pick it, as we are somewhat familiar with in modern Gaudiya Vaishnavism, that one will take an Acharya's statements that support their viewpoint, discarding any other statements that the Acharya may make in relation to a specific subject. So this is not something new, cherry-picking, in order to make your point. This is this has been going on for some time. So we should not see it as a, as a new occurrence. As they say, history does repeat itself. So we have to look at the whole Bhagavad Purana is what's being said. It is just that his interpretations are sometimes slanted toward Advaitavad. In other words, the way he presented things. He presented things according to time, place, and circumstance. What Sri Jiva Goswami writes here is that these few lines, in these few lines, is based upon Swami's commentary on Bhagavat Purana. In other words, this Anucheta itself was written specifically to address this subject. He doesn't really mention Swami, Sridhar Swami, but the whole verse and the verse that he personally composed is meant to emphasize not only his appreciation for Sridhar Swami in that he's not going to openly refute his Bhagavatam commentary, but one would naturally ask, here's all your Sandarbhas, and in all your Sandarbhas, your primary, not only to use the, the Bhagavatam as, as sutras, which are explained, but you generally don't explain them yourself. You generally first take an explanation given by Sridhar Swami, and then you go on to elaborate on his description. Now we come to this section of your Paramatma Sandarbha, and Sridhar Swami's just not there for, for a whole series of Anuchetas. So one would naturally ask, why not? What's changed? And this Anucheta answers that inquiry, although indirectly, not in a direct way, not in a confrontational way, in a respectful way, ending with a prayer to Krishna's lotus feet. If we're not seeing Krishna's lotus feet, then 
then we're not seeing anything. It's all it all really is an illusion. Logic and reason and everything else have no value and nothing is real except that. Nothing else is of any truly desirable substance than Krishna's lotus feet. In particular, the line beginning with Satye Naiva Kartra, meaning his own verse, by the real agent alone, is a mirror image of Sridhar's statement in his commentary on the Bhagavatam 112. So he started that verse that he composed himself by drawing from Sridhar Swami's commentary at the very beginning of the Srimad Bhagavatam. And here is his commentary, Sridhar's commentary, to that second verse of the Bhagavat Purana. Quote, the word Vastava, real, in this verse means that the jiva is an integrated part of the truly existent Vastu, absolute reality. Maya is the potency of the truly existent Vastu, the universe is the creation of the truly existent, Vastu. All this is nothing other than the truly existent, Vastu. It is not separate from that, Vastu. Veja, knowable, signifies that it, Vastu, can be known without much effort. In other words, you've got the Bhagavatam in your hands. You're, you're, you're most the way there to knowing the supreme absolute truth. Just keep reading. This is the very beginning of his Bhagavatam commentary, Sridhar Swamis. You've made it this far. It's really easy. It's basically what he's telling the readers in his commentary. From here, just continue to go through the Bhagavatam because ultimate reality is revealed in these few pages that follow. No, it's 12 cantos, but it's, it's uh, only 18,000 verses, so it's not, not that much. Without much effort. If you've made it this far, not a lot of effort left. Since in some places Swami has acknowledged the world as unreal, Sri Jiva composes an original Sanskrit Karika verse beginning with Satyam Na. For us, any real object. By this, he means that what is important is that Sridhar Swami has accepted Bhakti to Krishna as supreme, and therefore, it is of no concern whether he says that the world is real or unreal. <laughs> it really doesn't matter. If he says Krishna is the supreme personality of Godhead, he can say anything else <laughs> because he's got it. He knows the supreme absolute truth and how he wants to present the world as real or unreal or from an Advaitic stance in certain commentaries, it really, that's not the real important thing of his commentary to the Bhagavatam. And anyone that says that it, anything to the contrary doesn't understand Sridhar Swami. It is for this reason that Sri Jiva writes below, and now we go into a, a preview of the next Anucheta, that his explanation of verse Srimad Bhagavatam 1087.36 in Anucheta 70.2 is more or less the same as that given by Sridhar Swami. In reality, Sridhar's explanation is that verse is mixed with Advaitavad principles and does not match his bhakti explanations given elsewhere. What Jiva has written in the beginning of this section is in reference to Sridhar's bhakti principle, according to which Jiva's explanation of that verse follows that of Sridhar. Jiva attempts to explain the meaning of Sridhar Swami's Advaitic statements below. Now this is the first subsection of the 85th Anucheda. So there's two other sections of this particular annotator that we'll continue with in the next discussion uh, where he 
he kind of elaborates on these opening statements by bringing out that you can look at what Sridhar Swami says and it, it doesn't have to be from the Advaitin point of view. So we'll begin there. Are there any questions in regards to what we discussed this evening? Uh, the Maya is sometimes translated as matter and sometimes as material energy. And um, But what's the difference between the way that we would typically conceive of matter like from our the way we're kind of accustomed to thinking of it and and matter as it's presented by the Bhagavatam. Generally when we when we think of well I don't think there's any gonna be any difference what you are you talking about contemporary a contemporary uh, understanding of what matter is? Yeah. The elements yeah, of matter? When we grow up, we're kind of condi- we're we just think of matter as, you know, we think we know what it is, sort of. We have a, an idea of matter, you know, it's like molecules and there's... Yeah, I think, I think the, the only... I understand what you're saying. I think the difference, uh, the commonality would be through uh, the scientific presentation of a periodic table, which would be these are the building bar- blocks of of, uh, of nature, they say. So they have so many little squares on their chart. I forget how many. And two little letters to symbolize each different component as they see as a basic constituent of matter. I think... We, uh, the Bhagavatam would not object to that presentation as far as the, the, the Mahabhutas, what we refer to as the, the five primary elements, earth, water, fire, air, ether. I think there'd be some correlation there that could be drawn between the way, um, scripture presents, uh, the five elements of matter. I think when we get beyond that uh, to a deeper appreciation of the subtly uh, subtly of sense uh, objects, uh, sound, form, taste, smell, uh, feeling, uh, touch, uh, modern science has very little uh, acknowledgement of those at ta- tanmatras or sense objects as matter. They don't see them as matter. Uh, I believe that would be a first the first indication. They also don't see the the working and the knowledge acquiring senses, five working, five knowledge acquiring senses. And then the five uh, tanmatras or the five sense objects. So now we have 15 elements of what are vedically understood as matter, uh, not within their purview. And then you have mind, intelligence, and false ego, which are also part of the uh, upadan or the constituent part of matter. Uh, and then you have the bahat or the unconscious mind, or the unconscious, I guess, forget mind, just the unconscious. So, Vedically, scripturally, we look to 24 components of matter, what we've just gone over, and I think material science would would leave off with the five, but they've taken that those five elements and broken those down into what they consider the the sub uh, what do you mean what we a subset of earth water fire air and ether and whatever what is it a hundred and some uh, the periodic tables uh, I don't know how many three or four yeah depending, on, depending on, on where they're at right now yeah it's like in the one hundred five or something yeah. 
So that would be the distinction that I could, uh, that comes to my mind when you ask a question like that is they basically got it for the first five and then the next 19 is not on their periodic chart. Does that help? So, like, um, say, like, um, in uh, psychology, um, there's sometimes some different areas where they, like, kind of identify sort of subdivision within the self and the mind. Um, and uh, sometimes it seems like maybe they correspond with mind intelligence or samskaras or anything like but so like if we were to look at like psychological terminology or something maybe mistaken to try to like make translations of uh like if you could find a if you could find a common vocabulary with the modern psychologists, then those you know those correlations uh, could be drawn out. I think the first thing would be a definite defining of terms. So first, you'd have to sit down with the psychologists and determine uh, commonality of terminology. Otherwise, you're going to have a hard time carrying on a meaningful discussion uh, in regards to any commonality between the different psychological understandings and the Vedic uh, version. Can I ask you another question that's not related to uh, the book? Oh, okay. First, I would ask, what's the Pramon for his statement that it's just a preaching strategy? Uh, well, he didn't refer to it as a preaching strategy. Actually, it's a teaching strategy. Okay. Um, like he just said, like it just means like that. It's initiation means it's the beginning of the teaching begins. Okay. With initiation. That was all. Yeah, we have so no argument with that. Initiate means to begin. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I was thinking that, like, um, that there's more that happens, like, at, at the time of initiation. Like, yes, there is more that happens underneath the hood. Yeah. What's happening underneath the hood is the intent of bhakti. The intent of bhakti is expressed through the bhakta. And the bhakta is extending himself through his teachings and also through his heart uh, to to fit the disciple. There's there's more happening under the hood uh, than just teaching. It's not material knowledge. It's spiritual knowledge. It, as Guru Maharaj says, it has an agenda of its own. And the guru also has an agenda of his own in providing knowledge and spiritual guidance to the disciple. Okay, that's good. Thank you. You're welcome. I have a question. Um, is there, what, what's the difference between Parinamavad and Satkariyavad? Is there, are they interchangeable terms? or Satkariyavad is, is included within Parinamavad. In other words, Satkaryavad is that philosophy where we say real has to, a real object has to come from a real source. And a, and a so that's included with. A cause in, included in that that philosophy is included in Parinam, where we say that 
the cause is a potency, a real potency of the supreme absolute truth. That's why the world is real, because the potency comes from the real Paramatma as one of his Shaktis. So that's the way it's explained, that Karyavad is included within Parinamavad. Okay. I have one more question, and I think I already got the answer just from listening. But um, you know how we say like don't cherry pick, and you mentioned that. Um, how is that? Um, what's the what's the like the, the rule, so to speak? Because it sounds very similar to what everyone else or what Jeeva is doing, where he picks verses to support his argument. Yes. Right. No, it does. You're absolutely right. That's a good question. And what we see is, actually, it was answered a little bit in this evening's discussion. What is the overall presentation of the Sampradaya that the Acharya represents? So, yes, we do pick and choose. We pick and choose that Krishnavarnam, Tusa Krishnam, Sangha. So we, we choose. Who's drawing this verse from the Bhagavatam and saying this is referring to Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu? We're picking. We're picking Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. Our next Sandarbha is the Krishna Sandarbha based on that little statement. Jiva Goswami is going to expand upon that and show through picking <laughs> verses throughout the Bhagavatam this, there cannot be any other conclusion. You take that verse and repeat that verse, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, to a Sri Vaishnav and he'll say, no, that's not, that's not the Parivas, that's not the key to the Bhagavatam. Supreme Personality of Godhead is Narayan, and his concert is Lakshmi, not Krishna and Radha. That's a, that's just a pastime. So yes, we pick and choose. But what we see is our acharyas they pick and choose according to the conclusions of the sampradaya which they represent. Now I'm speaking in a very general way here. Let's stop, step back from being a Gaudiya Vaishnava and just be a Vaishnav. There are four sampradayas, and they have different perspectives on the ultimate attainment, the ultimate priogen. They are different. So, yes, there is picking and choosing. Jiva Goswami, you are right. He does pick and choose. But the overall conclusion of all the picking and choosing that he performs is in alignment and we actually call him the Acharya because of it, with the, the conclusions of the Brahma, Madhva, Gaudiya, Sampradaya. And guess what? We really think that we do the best picking and choosing of all. <laughs> That's what we say. We say that what? It is the sweet, sweetest fruit that's fallen from the tree of the Vedas. So we think our, our, it's unadulterated, pure, coming directly from the supreme manifestation of Godhead. And the Sri Sampradaya will say, well, we have a different viewpoint. And they will make their arguments. And they will pick and choose their verses. What's the point of arguing? There's no point in arguing because where your heart has been won by a manifestation of the Lord, then there's no changing your heart. So Sri Chaitanya, even as we mentioned a little in the last discussion, someone has attained a certain level of of love for the Lord in Bhav, you're not going to sway them. Even though you be the Lord himself and say, come over to my side. So Sri Chaitanya couldn't sway certain individuals. Morari Gupta is one. A purpose might be that you become stronger in your own your own path when you're arguing with somebody else. 
Yeah, you can also do that, but you also do it with the greatest respect for another Vaishnav. I don't like to argue. I mean, nothing wrong with having discussions about it. Yeah, just because we use the word argue, not it's not. Right. It's good if you really know. I guess I'm not. My faith is getting stronger, but I'm not at a position where I feel like I'm ready to go against somebody else about their thing. Unless the other person's so-called faith is being used to the detriment of other people's spiritual advancement, and then you have to call them to task. All right. I thank you for your association.